See, I love that about Jesus because Jesus is like, look, I want to witness, but I'm not going to let you do it in your own strength. I'm going to give you my spirit. And my spirit will now energize the life of my resurrection in the midst of who you are. And for each one of us, that is what God is trying to do right now. Your circumstances, the things that you're dealing with. God is saying, listen, I want to enliven the resurrected life of my son Jesus in your life. What does it mean to you to be a witness for Jesus? Do you think of a street preacher or maybe a missionary in a faraway land or having a conversation with your neighbor over coffee? For sure, all of those would qualify as being a witness for Jesus. But the two people Pastor Daniel is going to introduce you to today are in a different category than what you're probably used to thinking about because they're needed for a special time in the world's history. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, as he begins his message, The Two Witnesses. So I get to play a lot of roles in life, and I'm so grateful that I do, but one of my favorite roles that I get to play is to be a dad. And so it's just such a blast. And so you might not know this about me, but just this fall, I became a volleyball dad, which is amazing because I literally don't know anything about volleyball. I had one volleyball experience growing up. This was right when Lynn and I, before we got married, we went to see my family in Florida and we were down at the beach in Daytona Beach and there was these beach volleyball courts there. And obviously I saw Top Gun, so I thought I'd be good at it. So like me and my sisters and my brother-in-laws and my dad and my, you know, my aunts and uncles were all there. And this guy rolls up and he's like, hey, you guys play volleyball? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, how about if I play all of you? And we're like, sure. And so it was like 15 Italians and this guy. And when I tell you, we got zero points on him. Literally, he was digging, setting, and spiking on all of us the whole time. So after the first game was over, and it was funny because it was like, you know, (laughs) my family is so funny. My dad looks over about like we're down like 15 nothing. He's like, this guy's really serious. And I, and I started laughing because I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, dad, he, he just offered to play our whole family in volleyball. Like, like, what did you think was going to happen? So after the game is over, it's like 25 nothing. We're, my, my dad walks over, you know, he's like, you're really good at this. And he's like, I like to play. He's like, thanks for playing. You want to play again? And they're like, no, no. Like, <laughs> so we started talking to him. And so it turns out that the, the guy we played volleyball against is a guy named Paul Dahlhauer, who's like, like one of the best beach volleyball players in the world. <laughs> so it made us feel like our bruised egos felt a little better after it was over. I'm like, I got spiked on by Paul Dahlhauer, you know? <laughs> That was really my only experience of volleyball, but sure enough, so our, our middle child, Maranatha, who we love so much, so she, she went to high school, and so going into high school, she's like, hey, Dad, I think I'm going to go out for the volleyball team. And I'm like, okay. And so I'm like, Mara, when was the last time you played volleyball? She's like, fourth grade. And I'm like, well, all right. And I'm like, well, listen, you know, high school's pretty competitive, so I don't know how it'll go. She's like, well, we're just going to try, Dad. 
And so sure enough, she went to the tryouts and she made the team. And the coaches were super sweet to her. You know, they're like, listen, they're like, you don't have the skills yet, but you're athletic, so we can teach you the skills. And I was so proud of her. And she's like, dad, I made the team. And so then you start like this whole new world where it's like, I got to get like athletic tape and she's got knee pads and there's all this stuff going on. And she's going to practice and she's learning and she doesn't know the rotations as she's going. She's learning everything as she's going. But one of the things that I love so much about watching her, and it was such a great testimony, was that she was willing to be not good at it, knowing that she had to go through that to get better. And so each day she'd come home from practice or, or get, and I remember I'm at a game, you know, cause like, I want to be the support. I want to be there. And I remember they put her in and I like almost threw up in the corner. Like, I was like, oh no, here we go. You know, and I'm having visions of Paul Dahlhauer just like slamming it on my head. And I'm like, my poor daughter. And you know, at least my family was there when I died in the volleyball court and you know, the whole nine. And so, but she gets on in there and she's playing and she's learning. And literally just the last game she went on in there. Now, well, her big nemesis had been serving. She'd been trying so hard, like literally at home, she comes home from practice, she tapes up her wrist, she goes outside and she's like hitting the ball and trying to serve. She's like, dad, I just can't get the thing over the net. And normally the coaches, they're good coaches, so they sub her out. Before it's time for her to serve, they sub her out. So the ball go over the net, but sure enough, the last game, like all of a sudden Maranatha walks back. She looks at the bench because she figured they're gonna sub her out. And the coach is like, no, you got this. And I'm like, I go in, I'm like, she's going to serve. She's going to serve. This is a big deal. And so sure enough, she hits it, it goes over the net. And like, I literally, I'm like, and like, she's like, you know, and it was like, it was such a cool thing though. But, but the reason I tell the story is because part of walking with the Lord is willing to take steps of faith and not have it all together. We know that we're saved by grace apart from works, but yet we have this kind of misguided belief that God expects perfection from any of us. No, straight up, because he's God, he's all-knowing, he knows you're all jacked up and so am I. He knows that like we're not gonna get it all right, but it's why Jesus chose Peter to be one of the disciples. Jesus knew Peter was impetuous. He was kind of a shoot, ready, aim kind of a guy. Like he wasn't thinking things through and strategizing. He would just take a step of faith and things would happen. And sometimes he would just screw up royally. God knows that that's who we are. And so, so much of life in Christ is being willing to step on out, to try things. And what's beautiful is, is as we step on out and as God meets us on those steps of faith, we begin to develop what is commonly called a testimony, but what is biblically called a witness. A witness is somebody who is watching and seeing what the Lord is doing because they're in the middle of it. It's like John's first epistle where he says, the things that we have seen, the things that we've touched, the things that we've beheld, that's what we're telling you about. The apostle Paul in writing to the church in Corinth said, we don't need letters of commendation because you're our living testimonies. You're our living witness of the truth of the gospel. And what I want to tell you is no matter where you are on your faith journey today, you are a witness of something. And if you are here today and you're a follower of Jesus, God wants us to be a witness to who Jesus is and what he's done. And our lives should be an expression of that. And it involves stepping out. It involves trial and error. It involves like you do something, you think it's God, and then after you're like, whoa, I wish I checked that with somebody before I did that. And that's part of the journey of faith. And I bring that up today because 
in our series here that we're doing in the book of Revelation, we're going to run into two unique witnesses. So open your Bibles, Revelation chapter 11, as we continue our study through the book of Revelation. Thank you all for being so encouraging as we've been going through the book of Revelation. I've heard so many uh, fun comments about this study. So open up your Bibles, Revelation 11. It's the last book in your Bible, Revelation 11, as we study along together. It says this first one. It says, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there, but leave out the court, which is outside of the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Verse 3, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth, and if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Everyone say, oh gosh. Let me just give you the big idea first, and then we'll kind of unpack it from there. Really what we learn here is that you and I, we want to be a witness. Because we're learning about that we have to be a witness. Because we have these two unique witnesses that have a specific role. And so the big idea that we're going to look at is that we all are called to be a witness, maybe different from these folks, but just the same, we want to be that witness, people who participate and see what God is doing, and we play a role in this world. Now, to dive into Revelation, now, in some ways, Revelation 11 the book's complicated, and there's a lot going on there. And if you've studied the book, you've probably heard, like, this is one way to interpret it, and this is the only way to interpret it. And if you've spent a lot of time studying it, you realize there's a million ways to interpret it. And so right from the get-go, you realize that the book of Revelation is strange because when John is writing this, most scholars believe that it's almost at the end of the first century. So after the temple had already been destroyed. So now all of a sudden, he's given a rod, and the angel says, I want you to measure the temple but I want you to leave out the court of the Gentiles. And so right away, people get like, well, what's going on here? And this was already after the first temple was destroyed. And then most people would say, well, in the last days, the Jewish temple is going to be rebuilt. A lot of people watch the things that are going on in Israel and are looking at that. And so it becomes very, very complicated. And what makes it even more interesting here, of course, is they're told to measure the temple, but don't measure the court of the Gentiles, of course, the outer courts, because they've been given over to the people who don't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, you know, what do you do with that? And the answer is, is what? I don't know. (laughs) For some people, they're like, man, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem is the key, and it may be. If we take these things literally, and I always like to joke with people, because people say, I take the Bible literally. I'm like, well, do you really? I do this because I'm from New Jersey, and I can't help myself. And they're like, I take the Bible literally. I'm like, well, so do you really think Jesus is a door to the sheepfold? And then they look at you and they're like, they don't know what to say. But really, you know, Jesus is saying he's the entrance point. You know what I mean? We all take the Bible literally, but we all kind of take it literalistically. Certain literal things aren't actually literal. 
Does that make sense? And so I think the simplest interpretation, if you're going to look at it, is that, yeah, at some point, most likely, if I take the Bible at its face value and I try not to make it mean anything, then there'll be a rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And it would make sense that the outer courts wouldn't be there because if you, you notice how the Temple Mount is structured right now, there is mosques on there and there's all these different geopolitical happenings with it, but there will be this temple in the last days. And it says that they're going to tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, what becomes really kind of unique about all of this is you run into this idea of the 42 months, which is also called 1,260 days, which is also called a times, time, and a half of time. All of these things show up in the prophecies of the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. And so what you really find is if you look at it with the way that they reckon time, this was what it would call a lunar calendar, 30-day months, is that it, it really boils down to about three and a half years. How many of you ever heard of the phrase, the seven-year tribulation? Go ahead, raise your hand. Actually, if you didn't know it, you didn't have to raise your hand. I just wanted to make sure that those of you did know it, you raise your hand. Um, so that comes from the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. Now, if I'm losing you, because I'm like kind of splattering a bunch of stuff here, just hang in there. We'll be back to like the normal thing. I just want to make sure I get all this out there. Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy of the 77s, really what there is is there's this, after the coming of the Messiah, there's this final seven-year chunk now, we mistakenly say that it's a seven-year tribulation. Really, it's the 70th week of Daniel. It's the last seven-year period. And it would seem that the first three and a half years is a time of peace and safety. And it's really the last three and a half years that is the, what we would commonly call the time of tribulation. What's interesting is you have this here that it's like, we're going to constantly see times time and a half of time, which means three and a half, 1,260 days, which if you do the math, it's three and a half years. And of course, 42 months, three and a half years. And so it all kind of fits together there. So we get that here. But what's interesting is in the midst of all of this, really what we learn is I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, right? So you have these two witnesses who come on up and they are going to prophesy for this three and a half year period. And it says that they're clothed with sackcloth. Now it says that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of all the earth. Now what's interesting, and I've told you this as we've been studying the book of Revelation, is that for a book that has about 400 verses in it, there's over 800 references to the Old Testament in all of these verses. I could do like a decades-long study with you of taking each verse of the book of Revelation and running down all of the allusions and the references that are in all the Old Testament. Now, if you want to do your own homework, if you read Zechariah chapter 4, that's where this idea of the olive branches and the lampstands come from. And so Zechariah chapter 4 is where you find that. There's a whole chapter about this. And so he's saying that there's these two witnesses that are going to come up. They're going to be prophesying in these days and it says that they're going to be wearing sackcloth. Now, sackcloth was not as fashionable as it sounds. <laughs> sackcloth was the least comfortable thing you could wear. And the idea of sackcloth, it was a way of afflicting your body to be almost like a prophetic display of the afflictions of our soul. So normally when someone would fast, when they were mourning, they would put on sackcloth and ashes. So sackcloth was clothes that were uncomfortable and ashes mean they would throw dirt on their head. And it was a sign of like, I am so undone. I am as low as the dirt. That's what it really means. 
And so it was an outward sign of inward grieving, and then they would, wouldn't eat either. And it was their way of expressing outwardly the grieving of what they're experiencing. And so these prophets are not like our modern-day prophets who have TV shows, who get dressed up in nice suits and have manicured hands and great hair. And I'm not talking about myself because I don't get a manicure, although I do have a TV ministry. (laughs) But the idea is they're mourning and they're prophesying about what's going on. And as you see what they're all doing, it says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth. So they have like a little bit of a Godzilla gifting. That was pretty good, wasn't it? (laughs) Someone's like, what's Godzilla? You guys are young. Go to YouTube. It's on there. Okay. So so you have fire that goes out and it would devour their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, they get the fire from these prophets' mouths. And they also had power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the day of the... So while they're prophesying, there's going to be drought-like conditions... And then they have power over the waters to turn them to blood, and then they can strike the earth with all the plagues. And so these two witnesses, their ministry for this 1,260 days is pretty wild, at the very least. Now, of course, someone is bound to say, well, Fusco, who are these two prophets? And I'm happy that you asked, because I'm going to tell you the answers. Everybody ready? Everyone lean in. Drum roll, please. Who are these two prophets? Go on, drum roll, please. Anybody? And the answer is, is I don't know. There you go. Why? Because the Bible doesn't say. Now, I can give you some potentials. In a sense, we know that Elijah is going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. You get that in the end of the book of Malachi. So you know that Elijah's coming. And some of these things were things that Elijah did, like call down, you know, he was able to devour people with fire, that there would be no rain. So Elijah has that. So uh, most people believe that one of these will be Elijah. What makes matters more complicated is if you remember John the Baptist. John the Baptist says he wasn't Elijah, and then Jesus said he was. So for you Bible nerds, go have fun figuring that out. (laughs) It's challenging. I mean, that's why I love the Bible. I say that, and I say it flippantly. But one of the things I always tell people is that God's goal is not to give us all the details. God's goal is to give us enough that we know that we can follow him, but then we have to pursue him. That's what he wants. So when God makes it a little bit more complicated, it's because he's drawing us in. So like literally, like I've been studying the Bible for over 20 years now, and I love the scriptures. I read it every day. I study it for fun. But then you're like, oh, they asked John about, are you Elijah? He's like, nope. And Jesus is like, yep, he is. So it's like, what do you do with that? It's like, what? Because really, Elijah's going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So in a sense, John came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he wasn't Elijah. And so obviously, I think one will be Elijah. Now, as you get to the second witness, of course, it becomes much more Conjectural. A lot of people think it would be Moses because I remember Elijah and Moses showed up with the tabernacles on the Mount of Transfiguration. And obviously the ability to bring plagues on the earth would be reminiscent of the ministry of Moses in Egypt. So you have that piece of it. The early church believed it would be Elijah and a man named Enoch. How many of you remember Enoch from Genesis chapter five? Some of you do. Elijah and Enoch were the only two people who were like translated out of here. They never died. And so they say it might be Enoch, people like Aranus and Tertullian. They all believe that it would be Enoch. Other people believe it will be Zerubbabel. Because of Zechariah chapter 4, go read it. It's interesting that the prophecy, the two lampstands are Zerubbabel and a man named Joshua, which in Hebrew would be what? Yeshua. Yes. The Bible's deep. All that to be said, it doesn't tell us actually who they are. So what we do know is in the last day, there'll be two witnesses. They have a very supernatural ministry. But by way of application, of course, 
I made the point that all of us need to be witnesses. And when was the last time any of us sat down and thought about what is my witness for Jesus in the world? The people who know me, family members, loved ones. You know, it's one of the things I love. I was just talking with my oldest, my son, Obadiah. We were talking about what does it mean to think about our witness in the world? You know, and it's cool because he's 17 and loves the Lord. And we're like, like, listen, the way that we live is the witness that we have. It's as simple as things like choosing to be kind to people, being someone who's forgiving, being someone who's humble enough to say, listen, I kind of messed that up. I'm so sorry. These things, the way that we do our work, whatever our vocation is, I always like to tell people that we do our jobs as unto the Lord and our coworkers get the benefit of it. For too many of us, we do our work for a job or a paycheck, which I'm here to tell you that diminishes God's calling for vocation. Don't ever forget that in Genesis chapter two, one of the gifts God gave Adam was work. We live in a day and age, we know work is wounding, it's not easy, but work is something we do under the Lord. It's a third of our lives as adults. For you students, you in school, that's your witness. How we treat people, how we treat our enemies, all of this is part of the witness of the people of God. And Jesus, I believe, wants a beautiful witness in the world. The early church, they were called Christians because people knew that there was something different about them. The Bible says that the people of God should be peculiar people. And I say not peculiar, weird, although some of us may be, and I'm in that category, but we should be distinct from the world. We should be looking at things and living differently in this world. And of course, I always think about Jesus in Acts chapter one, verse eight. He doesn't say, I want you to be a witness and good luck. He says this, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, I love that about Jesus because Jesus is like, look, I want a witness, but I'm not going to let you do it in your own strength. I'm going to give you my spirit and my spirit will now energize the life of my resurrection in the midst of who you are. And for each one of us, that is what God is trying to do right now. Your circumstances, the things that you're dealing with, God is saying, listen, I want to enliven the resurrected life of my son Jesus in your life. And the key for each one of us is to not resist that, but to say, okay, Lord, yes, Lord, will you transform me? The number of times I say, God, will you get me out of here? And then I sense the Lord be like, no, I want to keep you there. I just want to get you out of you so that you could be like me there. And that's what God is trying to do in each one of our lives. So I want you to say, as you're moving through your days, as you're moving through your weeks, as you're moving through those challenges in life, say, God, will you make me a witness unto you? Will you help me to lean into the power of your spirit so that I can live uniquely in this day and age? Jesus is Well, those two people are certainly unique witnesses, aren't they? Fire from their mouths? Wow. And yet the message they will bring is the same one that's been preached from the beginning of God's relationship with fallen men. Turn from your wicked ways and follow me. As Pastor Daniel's been teaching, God's love for mankind has never changed, even when he's judging them just like he said that he would. 
everyone needs a little encouragement to get through their day, and we have a way to provide that for you. Pastor Daniel has some excellent advice, truth, and love to share in his two-minute messages available on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just go to JesusIsRealRadio.com and click on the social media links to find them. You won't be disappointed, and your day just might get a little brighter. Hey everybody, this is Pastor Daniel Fusco from Jesus Is Real Radio. I'm so excited about what Jesus is doing through this ministry to change lives and restore His people. Would you consider partnering with us as we continue to share the message of Jesus here on Jesus Is Real Radio? You can find out more and donate securely online at JesusIsRealRadio.com. Thank you for prayerfully considering this. Next time on Jesus Is Real Radio, Pastor Daniel will continue his teaching, The Two Witnesses. We'll talk about their unusual clothing and its historical significance in the Jewish world. You'll also learn how these witnesses are just the latest in a series of people who testify of God's greatness, His mercy, and His coming judgment. You'll also hear that you're to be a part of that line of witnesses if you're a follower of Jesus. You've been listening to Jesus is Real Radio with Pastor Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. Pastor Daniel will continue teaching through his series, A Year of Revelation, next time. Until then, may God bless.